This is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Bajani and me, Robert Cortnich. Okay, Suresh, why are we here? Well, I'm glad we're both wearing black. Balaclava's looking good on you. This is the European Parliament, but we've got to try and get in. I don't think this works. I've got a brown face with a beard. I do not see this working. Anyway, I'm going to divert the security guard. You see if you can duck in to the building. All right? Hey, look over here! It's me! Justin Bieber! Well, good evening, Mr. Bieber. You boys could just go around the front door, you know, like everybody else. Why are you chatting him up? Get in there. Or you can go in through the broken windows. It's entirely up to you. Nice balaclava, by the way, Suresh. Thank you. In that room, there's somebody in that room. Let's go in that room. I know who that is. Do you remember I spoke to you a few years back and I said to you that there aren't many politicians that understand fintech. Yeah. And I mentioned to you that there was actually somebody. His name was Syed Kamal. Do you remember him? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was in Europe a few years ago doing blockchain. He's, he had something on blockchain. So a rare occasion. I think we need to go in that room, make out we're here to have a meeting with him. Okay. Um... Uh, excuse me, um, are, yep. are, you, are, are you Mr. Kamal? Yep, I am. Yep. Ah, yeah, I, 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 I represent the, the, one of the Greek MEPs who's doing a lot of work on, on blockchain. Oh, Kalispera. Uh, yes. <laughs> How are yes. you? I'm, I'm good. <laughs> good. Yeah, and this is my, um, my, my personal assistant. Yeah, take the balaclava off. Oh, sorry, yes, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, why are you wearing a balaclava? <laughs> it's very cold here, it's very cold. Just, the weather's very How do you get through security with a balaclava? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> I think Robert, Stealth. we should come clean. We should okay, come we're going to come clean. We're, we're nothing to do with the Eva Galley. We are actually two fintech specialists who run something called Fintech Unplugged. And we really wanted to speak to an MEP about what's going on in Europe, what, what the European buzz is in relation to things like blockchain, new fintechs, financial inclusion and things like that. Because we spend a lot of time talking to people that are in the industry, but it'd be great to get a more sort of European-wide aspect on it and under, understanding what, what, what an MEP would think. All right, I'll see if I can find someone for you. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> so, so Saeed, what is your role, your current role as it stands right now? What is it that you do and, and you know, what's your involvement with the European Parliament? Okay, I am one of the members of the European Parliament for London. There are 73 for the UK, there are eight for London. Um, and when you're in the European Parliament and you're a member of the European Parliament representing your constituency, you also work on various committees. In the Parliament itself, and I'm in Brussels and Strasbourg, I work on financial services, I also work on international trade, but also in the past I did some stuff, stuff on tech. And that's probably one of the reasons you probably associate me with f financial services and tech, because I've worked on those together. Well, I remember when the first vote, well, the first, or should we say the first of many, but let's say the first vote on Brexit happened, and I recall you actually doing a flyer and kind of saying, this is the impacts that Brexit can have, and you were one of the first or only that I remember, that actually was talking about the impacts to the fintech community. How did you get involved in this kind of payments technology space? Well, I think in some ways, I mean, I've always been a geek. I mean, years ago, I programmed, you know, I had a ZX Spectrum. <laughs> I did machine code. I did 8080 and 885 in my degree, you know, uh, you, machine you code. You remember plugging into the internet? Uh, I, I, I remember, you know, uh, bits and sort of zeros and ones into the... Um, and, you know, and, and did Fortran and all that sort of stuff years ago. And I've always liked tech. I, mean, I kind of often joke that I used to be a geek. I'm not a father of geeks. <laughs> um, um, and I've always followed tech. I've always feared that day 
when actually I'm like my father or grandparents who actually say, what's all this technology all about? <laughs> you know, I think yeah. I'm actually there now. I'm trying to keep up with the <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep up. I mean, I'm way behind, but I, I, I kind of should, can't try and keep up with it. But I also think as a politician, I should try and demystify it, you know, and actually try and explain to people, to the public, but also to fellow politicians, you know, there will be a temptation to have laws and regulations around technology. I think quite often regulations and laws are behind the technology curve. The technology happens first and then we go, oh, what do we do about it? Or should we do anything about it? And we get involved when there's a problem, there's a complaint. Mm. And the the public expect us to do something. So I wonder how can we be sort of up to date with it as much as possible, demystify it, get experts in to, to explain to us what this technology is. And the two main things I've been doing recently have been both fintech, but also AI. And you know, there's some overlap, clearly. Mm-hmm. And also blockchain. Just getting people into the parliament to talk to us as politicians and actually to have a debate. People might start looking to politicians to get involved or not. I find that pretty amazing, mainly because I would love to be a fly in the wall when you talk about some of these topics to some politicians, because we have met many politicians where we talk about things that you mentioned, blockchain, AI, and it's like you can actually see... Glazing over. Glazing over. They're looking, thinking, what are you talking about? How can I move on to someone else to talk to? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's true, but we have to think about, you know, as politicians, we have to think about how all this stuff impacts our voters. Sometimes there will be politicians who say, and you can't blame them, well, let's wait until it impacts them. But actually, my view is, well, let's try and understand it, not necessarily to regulate early. Actually, I wouldn't like us to regulate too early in any technology space. I'm one of these people who says, you know, let's have a flow of ideas. Let's see the innovation. Mm. But clearly, things do go wrong sometimes. And that's when people look look to us as politicians. So there will be debates, for example, over self-driving vehicles in the future. When something goes wrong, who's going to take responsibility? We have to start thinking about that. You know, and actually, we have to start thinking about some of those issues not just in the UK, not just EU-wide, but actually globally as well, and make sure that actually we've got as much alignment or mutual understanding as possible. Uh, you, what's your, sorry, you yeah. talking about driverless cars. Well, that, that, that takes us whole, onto the whole subject of IoT, and, and this is where payments becomes invisible. I mean, What's IoT, Robert? Explain sorry, it. the Internet of Things. So, so the, your, your Siri talking to your fridge, talking to your car to say it needs filling up. IoT also has additional benefits of trying to reduce carbon emissions and things like that because it tries to make a city safer. So you'd have less cars on the road because a lot of them would be driverless and they would be picking people up on route, the best possible route they'd pick up on the way, and everyone would get to work on time and no one would be having delays because everything... Do you really believe that? No, no no one believes it. But that is your utopian society of... Where the Internet of Things is saying, and, and by the time you get home, the, the temperature of the house is the right temperature, the lights have gone on at the right time, you're not wasting any electricity. Yeah. And there are all these benefits. There are the side effects of 5G and all the stuff that's been going on recently about Huawei and things like that, which we won't talk about. But I think 5G, Internet of Things, payments being built in. So pe- people don't like payments, do they? they? If you look at Uber, people like Uber because you don't have to think about payments. Yeah, it's um, convenience. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I moved to Uber, well, I, I stopped with black cabs for a, lo- a long time. And actually, I, was, I was a little bit cautious, even though I like technology, of putting too much information on my phone. Yeah. Um, and I think people are worried about their uh, data privacy. I think we're all, we're all coming along a sort of learning curve on data privacy, for example. Of course. But what's interesting was I just got fed up when I'd get to the station at night and want a black cab somewhere. And I had a £20 note and the black cab driver would complain. I'm not saying all black cabs are bad, and they? Now no, no, I think they don't have card machines. Or actually, they'd say their card machine wasn't working. 
I just thought, you know what, it's so much easier with it, isn't it now? <laughs> and, it, and it is taking the pain out of the payment piece of any transaction. Yeah. And how, how many of us have been in that res restaurant situation where you're trying to pay the bill and you can't get the waiter's attention and you know your next train is in five minutes? Exactly. And you think, why can't we just walk out of the restaurant and it just takes the payment? Exactly. And we will get there. I think technology, which is where, where Suresh is at on the fintech side, and the regulation, which is where I am, yeah need to work together to create solutions and the European Parliament is where a lot of this is created. Yeah, I think but also, you know, we see the convenience side. I think we like tech, clearly, and we see the potential of it. But actually, sometimes there are potential problems. So the, the flip side of convenience, I'm not trying to put too much of a downer on it, is what happens when you think, where, where, what was that payment? Of course. What, you know, where's that, where's that money gone? Where, what, and, and, and what to follow that payment? Yeah, and you see this with the, adop the adoption of, for example, either Apple Pay or, 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 mm. or Android Pay at the moment. You know, there are still people who look at their bank account statements all the time and look yep. at it real time course, yeah. and want to account for every statement, uh, every transaction. And there are others who say, actually, on the whole, I trust my financial institution. I never, look at, I never look at my statement. I think we've got to be aware that there will be people who are cautious and it's how we bring them on board with new technology so everyone benefits. Now, aside, one of the things that we talked about was data and trust and all of these things. And, and I must say, uh, I was watching some of the, the interviews, or should I say, grillings that happened with Mark Zuckerberg. I'll tell you what, Said. let's let the audience decide whether it was a grilling. Thank you, Mr Zuckerberg. Thank you very much for coming to the European Parliament today and for agreeing to send your legal and technical experts to the uh, Civil Liberties Committee. And can I thank, also thank those here in the Parliament who have made this meeting possible. Now, please rest assured, I'm not here to try and score any cheap political points or to, have, to do any stunts here, but I want to concentrate what is important for the many people who have contacted me when they knew I would be here in the room today. Look, I'm a libertarian-minded conservative, and I believe in market-led solutions and that bureaucracy shouldn't starve innovation. Um, I'm also very tech-oriented. I quite often joke that I, I used to be a geek. I'm now the father of geeks. Um, but, where, but where business takes advantage of their users or consumers, then they come to us as politicians and they expect us to do something. They ex at least say something, but also do something. And what happened with the Cambridge Analytica case has quite, raised, quite rightly raised serious concerns. Now, many of us use social media. Um, indeed, I crowdsourced some of the questions today now, using social media before, before I came here. But what's really interesting has been the public outcry over so-called shadow profiles, where Facebook collects and stores data about internet users that don't have or use Facebook. Now, I understand that Facebook admits that you, that you collect this data and then store it for about 10 days. But given that this data is collected uh, continuously and that most people use the internet almost every day, then in effect, this becomes a continuous cycle. Now, I believe in self-responsibility. And I know that by having my own Facebook account, I have to take some responsibility for what I put on my own Facebook account. But what happens if I don't have a Facebook account? Is the only way of preventing Facebook collecting my data to avoid the internet altogether? Or can I, is, there, is there another way? How, do, how can non-users stop Facebook collecting their data? And what do you do with the, the non-Facebook data? Do you commercialize it? And given you do that, is it morally acceptable do you think, in your opinion, to collect non-Facebook non users' data without them knowing what you do with it? And are they able, if I'm a non-Facebook user, am I able to see the data that you've collected on me? And if not, why not? Thank you. I look forward to your answers. You've raised a lot of important questions, and I'm going to...
try to use the remainder of our time to get through as many of them as I possibly can. Um, is there anything else here? Shadow that... profiles. Shadow profiles. Compensation. Um, I got sure. So to, 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 your, to your question, the for um, for the content that uh, that websites and apps sent us, um, we think it's very important that people have the ability to clear this. Uh, so. Uh, we just launched or, or just announced that we're, we're building and will soon launch um, this clear history feature that allows you to clear um, all basic browsing history data. Uh, to your point about earlier around, um, you know, how do we separate out the security data? You know, it's, it's very important that we don't have people who aren't Facebook users uh, coming to our service and trying to scrape the public data that's available. So one of the ways that we do that is, you know, people use our service and and even if they're not signed in, we need to understand how they're using the service to prevent bad activity. And that's, you know, a big theme of today has been around um, making sure that we can do a better job of governing the system, um, keeping bad content out. One of the ways that we do that is by, is by understanding how people are using, are using the system. But if you're not a Facebook user, how do you stop that data being transferred? Yeah. Um, on the security side... Um, we think it's important to keep it to protect people in our community. Were there any other themes that we want to get through? I mean, there's... You weren't particularly soft on him. You kind of, you know, you gave him some very direct questions. I mean, do you think it was it was a showcase to show people that, you, you know, people will be held accountable? Or was there real substance behind that? And as I say, I thought you did give him a real grilling. And, and uh, you know, it's quite rare to see someone on a back foot like that. I mean, it wasn't my intention, actually, to give a, a, a grilling. I'd actually spoken to the Facebook public affairs people in Europe beforehand. And actually, I was very sort of, you know, I was very conciliatory towards them. And I said, look, this is, you know, I was telling them what Mark Zuckerberg could expect from the grilling. But actually, I thought his whole attitude surprised me. It was very much actually a PR exercise for him. I don't think he came across as someone who was genuinely there to answer the no. questions. Um, and I, you know, and it's funny because I, I had a lot of goodwill to him when he walked, walked, walked into the room. And what was interesting was there was clearly a concern about shadow profiles. That's people who are not Facebook users or not have a Facebook account, mm. but they might. But actually, Facebook collects their data, and he didn't answer the question at the time. And he tried to avoid it, and I saw no reason to avoid it. Now, to be fair to Facebook, they sent me a, a really good explanation afterwards, and they said, "Look, we collect data on people who visit Facebook, so they may have got to a Facebook profile via a Google search, but they're not actually Facebook users and logged on, and we collect some of that data for security reasons." And that's, that's a reasonable answer. I mean, I could have gone further what security issues. Mm. But why didn't he answer that at the time? And that's what, what I found but frustrating. But he may not have known that, to yeah, be fair. Yeah. And he could have said to me, I could get my guy to get back to you. But he just avoided the question. And he just avoided the question and said very smoothly, oh, uh, any other questions? Or, you know, and <laughs> and I, I would rather he said, well, actually, you know, there is a good answer to that. I can get someone to answer that later. Um, that's the only reason. But he's clearly got a good PR team yeah. around him yeah. that, that picked up that and yeah. got it back to you so that you wouldn't cause issues about it in the yeah, future, and to be fair to, to be fair to Facebook, I think we're all going on this, we're all as long as learning curve. People started using Facebook and thought, well, isn't it great? And we had things like Friends Reunited years ago mm. and stuff like that. I'm, you know, I can reconnect with old school friends and people I want to connect with, or actually sometimes people you don't want to reconnect yes, with. Exactly. You, know. you can block them. <laughs> but you know, you've, you're, 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 you know, school friends that you haven't seen for 30, 40 years, show my age here, you know, and you get in contact with them and that's great. But one of the things that we're starting to realise now is how much of our personal data that is we are held. Is, is held, and we're starting to be more aware of personal data. I think all of us are now more aware, and there's some people now reacting, saying, "Well, actually, I don't want any personal data." Well, 
And I think Facebook are kind of got to say, well, look, you know, there's a quid pro quo here. This is a free service. We don't charge you for it. And the reason we don't charge you for it, because actually we use your data. Mm. And there has to be that honest and open conversation that people make that decision. I guess it's almost like uh, having a credit card and saying, I'll pay my balance off every month. They don't make any money on it, knowing that you're on the back of other people that pay interest. I guess it's the same principle. Well, it's a bit like your Nectar card or other loyalty fees. You know, I know that when I've used my Nectar card or whatever, Sainsbury's know what I'm buying, but I think the quid pro quo for that or the the deal I'm dealing with them is that they might give me some discounts. Yeah. You know, but I accept, but at least I know that deal. I don't think people were aware of that with Facebook. And then, and I think there's more awareness, but I think the whole issue of data privacy is is actually one issue that we're all more aware of. You know, exactly. here in the UK, the EU, the US as well. But just this weekend, I was alerted to the amount of physical data they have on your tracking on Apple, and it took 20 clicks to find the screen that I could turn that off on. And it was unbelievable, the, the detail. Even when your phone is off, they, they, I mean, it basically picks up any place where you, where you res- stay for more than maybe 20 minutes, and it'll then log it. For London, and it was it was, it was a, obviously a log that deletes, but it, and it's last two two three days, but it just tells you every place you visited, and you click on the London, and it goes out, and it gives you a whole map and does red dots of everywhere you visited. So that's his travel history. Could you imagine his browsing history? <laughs> well, then, then, should we move on? <laughs> Don't embarrass you anyway. <laughs> no, I turned Google off on that, but I hadn't realised Apple until the weekend and managed to finally turn off. The... So we normally have something called the bin of confusion where we have questions. Now, because your security was very tight, today we have the satchel of confusion. Yeah, they wouldn't let the bin in. Um, I mean, he I'm was in his full ninja. A, I'm not surprised if you went to Balaclava. <laughs> It was Robert's idea. He said, I'm more likely, you know, with my complexion to get in. Yeah. I mean, this is the European Parliament yeah. after all. You are right. He's, he's got it, a beard on. Is a, what, I can't shave and impersonate you. It, yeah. Perhaps. No, the European Parliament is a very white place. Yeah, we have to admit yeah. it, yeah. Suresh, don't we embarrass were, yourself. We were, Even without a beard, you couldn't look as good as <laughs> Oh, thank you. Flash will get you everywhere. I'm going to come back. <laughs> what I was going to ask you is that the fintech capital of the world has been London. And it has been for a number of years. There's been a number of reasons. The way that the FCA have embraced innovation, the regulation, all of these things. It even got to a stage where, you know, other European countries were opening headquarters in London for it to be, you know, where they operate from. So now with Brexit happening and we are seeing companies get licenses in other territories and all sorts. What's your views on, on in Brexit in relation to fintech or, you know, the implications or considerations? Even if it's very high level, I'd welcome your thoughts. Sure. I mean, I think there are a couple of scenarios. I mean, so many scenarios that could happen. Yeah, of course. But let's look at one scenario. I think one scenario why some people voted for Brexit was that they wanted what we call a fairer immigration system. Because at the moment, you have an immigration system where you have a freedom of movement, freedom of movement for, for Europe, but actually not for the rest of the world. No. And so actually some people saw this as, see this as racist, some people see this as passport discrimination. You know, there's a, there's a debate on this, you know, on this, clearly. Now, my hope would be that actually if we did leave, we, actually we could change our immigration system and have one way to everyone outside the UK equally. And actually I would go for something like a point system. We can't have a point system at the moment for everyone. You could have it probably for non-Europeans, but and actually treat everyone equally and say, where are our skills gaps? And, you know, with, actually, with technology nowadays, you could easily scan vacancy boards and get that data together, and that would help to inform where the shortages are. And then we could lower the barriers for those people, because I think one of the things that I find difficult or I find a bit annoying sometimes is when people say, oh, we want the best talent, and they only talk about Europe. Actually, I think we want the best global talent. 
I don't think we should be saying just European talent. And I think we should treat people from outside the UK equally, whether they're from Europe or not from Europe. Now, the other side of that is, and the, the potential downside we have to be careful of, is if we do leave, how will the EU react on things like data flows? Mm -hmm. Will they make it as difficult as possible? In reality, we start with actually more or less alignment. And, you know, they have this thing called equivalence when they measure data flows between countries. But even with someone like the US, they've had problems. We've seen things like, you know, um, without going into too much, too much detail, safe harbour and stuff like that. And the EU could decide where we want to teach you a lesson because you've left and we're not going to, we're not going to grant equivalence equipment, to you. Even though, on the whole, we start with, we start with equivalence. Uh, there is one issue that they have some concern about, and I say this as a civil libertarian, and I understand that concern. They think some of our laws, are, some of our surveillance laws, are too big brotherish. And actually, I agree personally. <laughs> and, actually, and actually, they might then say to us, well, we want you to repeal that law to give us data equivalence. Yeah, that's fair yeah. enough. But, I mean, I, I, th I think equivalence is, is, a, is a good thing, but with for financial services, one of the key things for the fintech industry is, is passporting yeah. and the ability to work equally across Europe. And I get your thing about saying, yes, the whole world. We've managed to create a solution for Europe. I mean, that's quite a number of countries to get to agree how we work together. Yeah. And having a passport system where everyone agrees that we have these directives that come in, they're implemented across the whole of the EEA, they are equivalents, and that enables the regulated sectors to work across the whole of the EEA because everyone knows what the standards are. You, to do that on a global basis would be possible, but it would be a, a big, big job, and you'd have to get a lot of the very, very small countries up to the level of a lot of the big countries, and that, that's been one of the barriers to entry to Europe, to be fair, yeah. for some of the smaller countries, yeah. because they can't get up to the level to join yeah and so you've got small countries like moldova out there yeah. that are not ready to join yet because yeah. they can't get their systems up to that level yeah and if you do do that on a global basis it would be difficult so if we create a solution at, of a brexit style we need to have some sort of passporting with equivalence of laws continuing through the directives in financial services because financial services is something that the whole of Europe looks to the UK. They look at the FCA exactly. and the PRA and say, these are two organisations that not only get the European laws when they come in, but they actually create proper approach documents yes. and they really educate a lot of the smaller countries in Europe. Okay, the Germanys and the Spains and the Frances say, yeah, we, we know what we're doing. But to be honest, everyone looks to the UK. And also, a lot of the you know, big European companies act, you know, use London to access capital. So actually, they, you know, one of the things they've been saying to me is all these corporate treasurers are saying, look, we rather you didn't leave, but if you are going to leave, it's important that we can still access the London market and we will push for that. So there clearly will be a lot of pressure. Because they, they said actually it would have a knock-on effect for our economies. If the EU turned around and decided to say, well, you know, we're going to play hardball with you, you've left, and it's, we're going to make it very difficult for capital to be transferred or for passporting, actually it would incre increase the cost of those companies doing business in their own countries because they would no longer have access to the capital markets in London. Of course. So one of the things that they so one of the conversations I've been having with many of my colleagues is how do we do that once we leave? If we do leave under the deal, there will be this transition period to work that out. And again, I think there are more financial institutions passported into the UK than are passported into any other country across Europe yeah. from the UK. Yeah. And again, that, that must give us some leverage because I, I know all the way through the FCA and PRA have been saying we will continue to allow them to yes. be passported in, yes. hoping that they get an equivalence back. 
Yes. But I mean, we haven't had that guarantee from And Europe. they haven't had that because it's all part of the sort of plain hardball in negotiations. And generally, behind closed doors, I mean, obviously we see stuff, but what do the Europeans think? Are they, are, do they have to make a statement? Do they have to make a statement by treat, you know, not giving us what we want so that no one else follows suit? Um, I was in Brussels the day after the referendum and they were really shocked, not only that we had left, but they were really worried that this was going to be the start of a domino process, that if we left and made a success of it, other countries would leave and it would unravel the whole European project. Um, and for them, the European project is important. We don't talk about it so much in this country, but for them, they do want to build one country called Europe. They, some will call it the United States of Europe, some will call it a Federal Republic of Europe, but that's, that's their aim. And but I there think, haven't been any wars since. This is what I think one of the issues I felt during the campaign. I said this to some of my friends who are hardcore Remainers, who I said, look, you know, you believe in this project of European political integration. Why don't you argue for it? Rather than just, you know, just rather than just saying scare stories all the time or saying, you know, we're going to have World War Three, or, we'll mm. be, or I mean, one of the, I, the one, it was a former prime minister who said, we'll be like North Korea if we leave the EU. You know, I mean, there were... There well, was, that's pretty extreme. There were silly stories on both sides. That's a, yeah. that's a problem about the, re- the referendum. But clearly, you know, if you cut through a lot of this, the first thing was that they were really worried, first of all, that they couldn't believe a big country would leave. And secondly, they were worried that it was the start of a domino process. And they said to me, look, you know, we are going to make it as tough for you as possible. We're not going to do this under goodwill. We could negotiate in a goodwill way, but actually we don't want to make it easy for you to leave. Because if it's easy for you to leave, other countries might think about leaving. So we have to send a tough message. And some of the issues we should be talking about, we're not going to talk about until you, if you actually do leave, then we'll talk about it. But we're not going to, you know, we're not going to negotiate this with you early because it's all part of making it easier. And it has been a very... Torturous process. They played hardball. But I don't think it's been bad just for the UK, this whole drawn-out process. I think the rest of Europe is in limbo as well. Yeah. But do you think their strategy is they, the, there'll be a second referendum and we will stay in? I have two view, I get two views on this in the European Parliament when I speak okay. to my colleagues. Because you know, I have you know, these frank conversations with my friends behind closed doors and, you know, ask, and ask them what they think. And there's, there's, a, there's a difference of opinion. The more left-leaning parties or the socialist parties in the European Parliament will say to us, what we should do is give you an extension and you'll have a second referendum, you'll vote remain and you'll stay in. That's what they think. The, the centre-right parties say to me, actually what they think is going to happen is don't give us a second referendum, don't ask us for a second referendum because we'll vote leave again. And actually it, what they want to do is keep kicking the can down the road and hopefully that we don't leave. You know, just keep keep us in this sort of ambiguous in this, in, in this limbo, and then actually, eventually, something will happen. An event will happen. You know, a new a general election, a new government, something will happen. But they stay hope that we never we, we never leave. It's really funny. Just after the uh, referendum, my former PhD supervisor sent me an email with a link to the 1933 Western Australia referendum. Very obscure. In 1933, West people of Western Australia voted to leave Australia. Um, the, the state the, the state parliament. Didn't let it happen. The, the parliament. That's perfect. The, 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 the parliament. The parliament blocked it. And and to this day, Western Australia is still part of Australia. But and Perth it, has always wanted to leave, and he, they've got all the mineral resources. And he, but yeah, but he, but they, they warned they warned me that actually he warned me my PhD supervisor that actually this this could well happen here. In your personal opinion, yeah. if there was a second referendum, what do you think the outcome would be? I genuinely don't know. Um, I, but actually, if you look at uh, John Curtis, who does these things on both sides. He said, actually, you know, everyone does polls that suits their own their, their, mm. own, their own, own opinion. And it's the way you ask the question. He detects no real movement. He thinks it would be a very similar result. Even though there will be potentially an extra one or two million new voters of age that weren't there previously. Yeah. 
that's interesting. It's interesting because when I talk to people, and this is completely anecdotally, it depends who you talk to, and I try and talk to people across the spectrum you know, and across the country. We've got to remember in London we're very different. We see the country very differently to the, to the rest of the country. And we've got to protect, we've got to stop pretending that the UK is like London. We're very different. It's funny, most people I speak to just say, get on with it. You know, I, I voted remain, I accept the result, or I voted leave, just get on with it. I don't care about the details of leave either. I don't care about the backstop or this or that. I just want us to leave. That's just a fed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah so exactly. Long. But also, there is a, an element really interesting. You know, you have a referendum and you have a parliament that, that kind of doesn't respect that. There's a sort of loss of trust. And there's a, there's a worry here that if we do not end up leaving, actually, does this, leak, does this sow the seeds for a kind of Trump-like character in the future? Because that's what you saw. Well, Trump is a symptom of people feeling they weren't listened to by the political class. Yeah, that's, not, that's not really tech, very yeah. technology related, is it really? No, <laughs> no, 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 but it's very interesting. Very interesting. So let me dive into the, to the bin of confusion, because we... we, we Satchel. We, Satchel. Wallet. Wallet. Wallet, 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 wallet of, of confusion. confusion. Yeah. yeah, okay. If you were... Prime Minister, because obviously there's going to be a May stepping it, you're down. You're going to go for it, aren't you? Yeah. So May is stepping down. <laughs> so many steps there. Saeed <laughs> becomes, so many years. Saeed becomes the new Prime Minister of Great Britain. What fintech-related law would you propose? Is, is there something out there in fintech you think, you know what, that would be really good for society? No, I wouldn't propose a law as such, or because actually I think that's a bit of an arrogance to sort of say, you know, hey, I'm going to come to power and I know fintech better than anyone else. I've proposed this law. What I would do, because one of my interests is how you tackle poverty and financial exclusion. And I think what I would do is I'd get some of the best fintech brains in, in London or in the country down, you know, around We've around no chance around around, around table. I'll invite you as well. Oh, <laughs> Robert knows nothing about poor people. So right, okay, get get us around around get around table and say when we want to tackle financial exclusion. There clearly are costs involved and we want to reduce those costs to make it easier to serve people and to get people back into the financial system. But are there any laws that, make, that in, increase your costs that you think either I should repeal or modify? Or laws that stop them from doing that yeah, as stop, well. Yeah, stop them from yeah. doing that. You know. um, and you see that with a lot of voluntary organisations. They think there is a law or there is a law that makes it more difficult for them to be recruit volunteers or to tackle an issue. I would just get you into a round, round table. So tell me where you think the problems are. What do we need to maybe amend or repeal in order to allow you to tackle this issue? I guess like bureaucracy as well. I do remember there was this video of somebody trying to, a homeless person trying to get a job. They couldn't get a job because they didn't have an address. And in the end, they the application was doing yeah. all of There's that. lots of tick yeah. boxes yeah. in applications exactly. for jobs, isn't yeah, exactly. there? And then in the end, I, I, I remember seeing, I don't even know if it's true, but he basically wrote his address as a bench in a park. Yes. And he actually got the job. Yeah. But it's just... You know, those kind of bureaucratic kind of limitations. It's interesting. When you work with homeless projects, it's, you know, people quite often are quite unsympathetic to homeless people because they think, oh, they they should be working while they're begging. But actually, all of us are just one or two steps away in our life from being homeless. I mean, think about it. You've got a good family life. Something happens. So, for example, you get a divorce. circumstances. divorce. Or you lose a job. You've got no money coming in. That then leads to your family breaking up. You move away. Suddenly, actually, you've got no home, no money. And suddenly you're out on the streets. And just as equally, in some projects I've spoken to have said to me, actually the steps back could be simple, but there's too much bureaucracy. As you say, no address. Actually, access to just you know a shower before you go for a shower and shave and a suit before. So some projects actually work with getting the homeless in, letting them you know, clean up a bit, give them a, a donated suit, 
help them do their CVs and their applications and, and help them with job applications. And it's sometimes it's as basic as that, the simple things that we take for granted that you don't have access to if you're homeless. And it's and it can happen very quickly. I was, I was literally talking to someone recently that, that had gone through a divorce about 10 years ago, but they said the really weird thing was that the, the, all the accounts were joint and they all got frozen at the time. He'd moved out and was on sleeping with a friend and suddenly had no had no cash and no access to cash and went to the bank to say, could I open an account? And they said, no, you've got no permanent residence. But I've banked with you for the last 20 years. Well, you think and, some, and, some blocks we have now? I'm not, as a bomb bank I've, I've been with for over 30 years, they've just sent me a snotty letter saying something like, they don't, they don't even explain it, change in law, we need all your ID. And I think, well, hold on a minute, I've been with you for th- 30 years. You know, and I'm just going to close the account down with, with this particular bank. It's not my main bank, mm. but I've been with them. For th- and I think if it's, they're making it difficult for an existing customer who's been with them for 30 years, how difficult could it be with, for someone who actually just wants to open an account for the first time? You, you've made me think of a very interesting question based on that. You're obviously on the PEPs list, right? Thank so, you, yeah. <laughs> so Politically you, exposed person, yeah. for those of you who don't so, know what a PEP list is. When you apply for something... Do you get turned down because you're on a pet? It's a complete pain. When I make payments every month to my wife, not, not just to be my wife, but you know, <laughs> housekeeping. Can we, can we clarify that you're not buying your wife? No, housekeeping, you know, and stuff like that. My transfer, you know, there's a note, is hubby XXX. So they, they clearly have seen that in her bank, and they called and they called her in, and they gave her a third-degree interview about what? Where, does, where does this money come from, and she couldn't believe it, and it's all because she's married to me. Wow. Not because not I, you know, because as, as a pep. <laughs> but could it be you'd apply for an account somewhere and they would turn it down just because you're on the peps list? I had a colleague who applied for an account for her daughter. Yeah. And she, she the way she got round it in the end was that her husband went in with the daughter. She couldn't open an account with her daughter. You know, it's just but, really, but, really but difficult. The point is, and this is crazy, so pep sanctions are there to make sure you do an enhanced due diligence. They're not there to say, don't. But a lot of financial institutions have got a, just a tick list policy. And if they have to do enhanced due diligence, it doesn't pay them to be open the account. It's not commercially viable, yeah. especially if it's a child. Yeah. So it's like, oh, they need enhanced due diligence. Yeah. We just write them off. They don't want the risk. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to take that risk. But then this offers a huge opportunity for new fintech companies to come in, doesn't it? Really? Yeah. You yeah. think about it. You know, either those who are excluded because of bureaucracy, but also the financially excluded. Yeah, and if you can do the right checks and you have the right facility, and nowadays the, 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 the way in which we, some of these AI checks, do you remember we were talking, Suresh, about there's an, an AI company in Cambridge that is like all these professors and they've been working in A all this time and they're creating proper sort of fraud checking systems, transaction monitoring systems that are way outside all these machine learning ones that have been there in the past, yeah. using a lot of other media that they're pulling in to find out what these people are doing in their lives. And, and yet, none of that is in any of the legislation. No. And if you use it, it probably doesn't comply. And yet, you're probably getting better results. But also, that's this, I think it's where we come to... Because some of those, uh, when I speak to some of these companies, some of them say, actually, there's a lot of data out there about you. But some of it is actually from social media. And you haven't given yourself, you haven't given permission for that data to be used in that way. You've gone on page so, 10 and said, so, I agree. So actually, we have to, this is where more awareness of our own data and data privacy and data sharing issues, we will have to go up that curve. Because actually, a lot, a lot more stuff can happen, but you'll get a lot of complaints about this. But is this a generation play? I mean, you have children, yeah. right? How old are your children? Uh, 17 and 14. So do they 
going are, are they very trusting of the you know like page 10 except you know no kind of implication never read anything they just yeah, they, they, it's they, the internet they, I trust they, it they're all very trusting and I suspect when they're at, you know university they'll go on to Apple Pay without even thinking about it so it could just be a generation play in terms of going forward what our thoughts are may become irrelevant we could have both in parallel so I think it will just be a lot of uh, you know adopters of the technology but then at the same time as stories come out or cut or you know, whistleblowers or companies journalists asking questions will all be more aware of all this data and just out of curiosity, has there been any particular fintechs that you've been really impressed with? Um, I like companies that are actually, you know... Like right. Revolut yeah, and Revolut, Monzo yeah. and all those. Yeah, no, brilliant, actually. You know, And actually get people into the system. Because it's not doing the credit checks, it's just validating your identity. Yeah. I mean, I think w- one gap where I think people have missed out, one group people have missed out, is, is, is the credit unions. The credit unions have a huge opportunity to actually fill that gap that the banks are left behind. Mm. And for some reason, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, if it's their back office technology. And there might be a really good combination coming up here somehow about you know, if there's a really tech savvy people could go and some of the fintech people could approach credit unions. You could probably got your customer base and the technology. And actually, I think you could really, uh, I think you could really do some damage to the banks. I think it's a combination of, of, of not evolving, but also they've made so much money historically that it's almost like, do they really want to open it up so yeah. I think they have to evolve to compete well you've got to remember also banking is not you know banking is not we all think of banking you know we all think banking or a lot of people think that you banks that you put the money into account and it's kept there actually you don't actually deposit money in accounts you know you effectively lend your money to a bank and then they lend it out or they make they make money out of it and in some cases some banks in the past particularly in the lead up to the financial crisis actually some of them were effectively hedge funds you know <laughs> they, they, they weren't content with that small margin of taking your money, putting it on deposit, charging you a little bit of interest. You know, in fact, you know, there's one the other day who said there's no such thing as free banking. And I think, once again, we've all got to be aware of that. So do you want to dive in? We hear you're handy with the bass guitar. I didn't know this. Robert, did you write this? No, no, I don't know who sent this. Is your preference to blues any reflection of your life as an MEP? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you. No, it's really funny about the blues because I'm actually a pretty contented person. And most blues artists think about something wrong with their life. You know, my my baby left me or something (laughs) like that. But I've never had any of that. Yours Uh, could be they wouldn't uh, give me a bank account. But I mean, mean, probably probably the only thing I've got in common with them is like, you know, the line I woke up this morning. Yeah, you're you're still waking up. No, I I do wake up this morning. I wake up every morning. I actually wrote a song a few years ago. I woke up this morning. I woke up yesterday too. And if I wake up tomorrow morning, that would be three days. (laughs) 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 Exactly. But I just love the blues. I mean, I like lots of other music yeah, as well. Yeah. But I think it's my voice and my bass playing probably support. Um, is probably more suited to uh, blues than anything else. Do you go to any blues bars in London? I used they? to when I was younger, but I actually play. I mean, I play in a band and we play. We play in gigs. Um, we've got quite an international band. My my lead guitarist is a uh, Latvian uh, MEP, a former Latvian finance minister. Um, <laughs> I've got. Um, I'm just the, wondering, is this the real side? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this could be the real. Yeah. It's, it's, MEP. it's a minister that understands fintech, plays blues music with other um, ministers. Yes. This <laughs> could um, be a whole. What's the band called? Like like MEPs <laughs> Unite. We've, 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 we've changed our name over time. When we were just two Latvians and me. We called it LAB, the Latvian, the Latvian Anglo band. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, but actually, we now call ourselves because we, we we tend to play outside Brussels. So we played in we played a couple of uh, two or three festivals in Latvia, for example. We call ourselves Exiled in Brussels. Exiled in Brussels. Brussels. I like it. That's, that's got a good ring to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and the Latvians like your music? Um, they seem to. They invite us back. But uh, I'm not sure it's because actually my Latvian colleagues are very popular or whether they actually like the music. Yeah. 
well, you work long hours when you're in Brussels, and actually, and you go to a lot of meetings, even in the evenings. If you go to di- a dinner, there's a there's a purpose behind it. It's a work dinner rather than a, yeah. a relaxing. You know, no, so no break. It's not like you know. Go, I mean, occasionally you do get to go for a curry with your mates, or you know, or go for something like that. Is there a good curry in Brussels? Um, there are a couple, two, a couple really? of places. There's, quite, there's a decent place in Strasbourg as well, uh, but you've got to look hard for them. Um, and uh, it's just nice, sort of every you know, we try and aim for every couple of weeks, but it tends to be once a month. We have a band practice, nice, and it's just and it's just well, relaxing, it breaks it up a bit. Do you ever do one way. in London? No, no, it's funny for my 50th birthday. I, um, I hired a, a, a place near where I live and I asked about getting my band over to play. And they wanted public liability insurance. What? And I said, we're not that bad. Case <laughs> <laughs> people start jumping out windows. <laughs> it it quite, is the blues after all. And it was quite astronomical. I thought, no, okay, I just won't bother play, you know, inviting my band. And, so. and I'm just on, on the kind of topic of blues and all of this stuff. What I mean, how, we, how do you, how does your job operate on a day-to-day basis? Because I feel like, are you kind of like shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic? What, what's going on like... In your roles, in your teams, and stuff like that. Okay, I think I think generally an MEP has sort of two or three different facets to the job. So I also mean in this current yeah. circumstances. So the, the normal job, and I'll talk about the circumstances, is that you when you go to Brussels, you uh, you're on certain committees which deals with certain pieces of legislation. So I've been on financial services, international trade in the past. I've done some tech stuff as well. And the way that the EU works is that the Commission, the civil service, will propose the legislation. And they'll hand that proposal to two bodies. One is the European Parliament, and the lead committee on that will deal with it, amend it. They'll have their own version of that, that legislation. And you, it also goes to the Council, which are the 28 governments. You then have three versions of that, that legislation. We come together around the table. We call it a trialogue. It's a bit of a bun fight. And we bash out a compromise. That's how EU laws are made. So that's the, that's the legislative stuff. Then when I'm in London, I meet companies that are affected by EU laws. So I used to do, quite often Mondays, I'd, I'd be somewhere in the city meeting with legal firms or financial services firms or tech firms or others that you know impacted, or just visiting companies who might be impacted by legislation. I've also got the job where I'm, I am another voice for the public. So sometimes people write to me with, with constituency emails. So it could be a European issue. So particularly someone who's had a bit of trouble in another country or they might have a house or property or a job somewhere else and they've had problems there. I mean, a quick example was a guy wrote to me because his daughter had studied in Germany, but Deutsche Telekom still kept sending them bills, even though she'd left ages ago. So I wrote to the head of Deutsche Telekom and they, that, that, that got stopped, but they were banging their head against a wall, you know, wow. things like that. Yeah. And then there were people here who say, I've written to my MP and my council and whatever, and they haven't bothered. So I'm another voice for them. So I will then take up their case for them. And, then, and you have a constituency in London that is yours, or is it just seven for the whole of London? It, it, yeah, there's, the there's, there's, there's no eight. So area. we actually don't tell anyone else about that there are any other MEPs, but there are actually eight for the, for the whole of eight London. Eight for London, sorry. Yeah, and that's a good Seven plus you. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I don't say I am a MEP for London. I, I kind of say I'm the MEP for London. I'm, I'm sure the other seven say the same thing. We are London-wide, and it's one of the things I quite like about this job, that it's London-wide. And the other thing for me, which I find really inspiring, is how many local community projects there are across London. So there are people tackling real problems in their area and they're not looking to government for the answer or not looking to a large NGO. They're just getting on with it. And so a little bit of help, yeah. maybe a bit of you know, premises or a little bit of money or a little bit of advice or second-hand computers. You know, there's a jobs club that I was helping and she'd helped 100 people in the local area and where the job centre wasn't really helping them at all. And when I went to her and I said, what can I do to help? She said, could you help get me some second-hand computers and a filing cabinet? And no. I could help more wow. people like that. 
Just little things like that. Just incredible projects across London. There's a great project that helps uh, former gang members. Mm. They kind of say, we help turn drug dealers into sandwich dealers. I'm not sure what's in the sandwiches, but, no, no, but, I've, but I'm sure well, I've heard they're pretty good. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give you a smile. But actually, you know, those, those sort of projects, we're yeah. actually doing some really, really good work, well below the radar. And I, what I can do for them, I can either introduce them to people, or I can talk about them, or I might do a bit of social media for them and get other people interested. And what's the name of those initiatives? Like, it would be good to, you know, hear what they, the names of them. Oh, so, I mean, the, the, the one that sadly closed down was the New Eddington Jobs Club. Right. Uh, but there are lots of other jobs clubs in London. Right, right. There's a Regenerate project on the Roehampton Estate. Um, in the Brixton Prison, there's a bounce back, which helps ex-offenders get jobs in the uh, painting and decorating industry and the, and the construction industry, where there's a real, where there's a real shortage. Yes. Um, and, and, it, and it, you know, so it's some really great projects um, out, out there helping. I'm, I'm at the moment trying to set up a... A, I don't know if you've ever come across Kiva, K-I-V-A.org. If you log on to Kiva.org, you can lend twenty-five chunks of $25 to entrepreneurs around the world in poorer countries and, and in America as well. But So it might be it ranges from someone who wants more stock for their internet cafe to someone who wants to buy a goat. You know, mm. And it's really across the world, many developing countries. And does most of it get there? Yeah, and what happens, they work with existing microfinance organisations on the ground. Now, what's really interesting about that is why I've been a member for 10 years why can I lend $25, or which gets aggregated with other mm. $25, to an entrepreneur in a poorer country, but I cannot yet lend £25 or £50 to an entrepreneur in a poorer community in Britain? And I've been working on this for the last 10 years. They don't years. exist. doesn't exist. And one of the reasons is our model of microfinance is very different to the developing world. And I've now found an organisation, in fact, they came to me and we chatted about this, called Frederick's Foundation, and we're hoping to launch something called Friendly Lending, which is effectively a UK version of Kiva. I mean, one of the things I think is when people go into a social housing estate, for example, they, they either see it as a hub of fear or a hub of crime. Actually, it's probably a hub of enterprise. There's probably lots of people working either informally or possibly even legally. But how do we get those entrepreneurs to actually start their own businesses and give them capital? And in, just in terms of, so that's what you do. Yeah. Based on your circumstances, what's changing? Um, well, I don't know how long this job's going to last. I right. mean, we, have to, we didn't think there'd be another European election in the UK. There clearly may well be, unless the two parties come to some sort of deal. So does that mean you have to go out and start campaigning now? So there's local elections around, around this time, and after that, there might well be a European election uh, on 23rd of May. It's been called, so I have to assume that will take place. So now, do you, are you gonna, would you reapply? Um, yeah, I, I have, I've been reselected. Re um, I, I mean, I was having conversations with other people about moving on with my life, doing some of these projects. Well, actually, the party asked me, would you stand again in London? So it's okay, fine. So you're kind of steering the ship. So I'm, so I'm still there. I'm, I'm not sure I'm steering the ship, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, you know, I'm standing again. Um, now, if, you know, if we end up staying and we don't end up leaving, then actually I'll care, I will dedicate more of my time in London to some of these projects and deliver some of these projects. Um, and I can use... One of the things about politicians is we, we, we have a platform and we also meet lots of people. And I think I'll, in my, if, you know, as long as I, I'm there... I will continue to use this job as a platform to bring people together to tackle some of those real problems we see. In but London. you must have lost some really good staff in the back office in the team because they're all thinking we've got to find something because our job's not going to be there tomorrow. Yeah, and, and actually, most of my staff have, have left because you know they thought that their job is coming to end in March. I've got a couple of staff who are working with me to end of June, but you know they've got, got, gone on to other things. If we do stay, I have to recruit new staff. I'm just going to dive in the bin of confusion and and see what there is, Suresh. The wallet. So, 
Oh, no, not yet. It's the Wallet of Confusion. It's not even a bin. You better keep this name, by the way, Wallet of Confusion. Wallet of Confusion. We like that. We like that. So, let me dive inside. You hosted a blockchain exhibition at the European Parliament in 2016. I actually think I was there. What did the other MEPs make of it? And what's your view on blockchain and digital currencies today? I, I know Eva's been doing a, a lot, lot in this blockchain space and working on the sort of the technical standard and trying to get integration. How, how, how are you feeling? And what do you think Europe can do for something like blockchain and get it more mainstream? Um, I think the first thing is, um, you know, there's a lot of hype out there. I had someone who wrote to me and said, blockchain will solve poverty. That Fantastic. Might, that might be true, but can you help me out here? Can, we, <laughs> can you explain the steps? You know? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, for example, I was a few years ago, I was in, I was in Mauritius and I met a, a quite senior lawyer there. And we, st- we got into a conversation about blockchain. And he said, oh, yeah, we're doing blockchain in Mauritius. So that's really interesting. What are you doing it for? He said, our land registry. I said, well, that's really interesting. I can see that potentially in the future. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, mm. why do you do it? Do you really need to do it now? Or are you just doing it because it's a nice thing to have? Or is it future, you know? And they thought, actually, it would be a good... So it's a technology looking for a use at the moment for some people. Yeah, and a lot of things. I think, really, we, we, we really were at a very basic level. Tell us what it's all about. Tell us some of the issues that we have to be aware of. And the EU is also finding its way. So the EU set up something called the EU Blockchain Observatory. And it's just getting people and experts to come and talk about it, some of the issues. Um, so, and actually... I was in the US not long ago talking to some of the people in the, U- in the US government looking at blockchain, and they wanted to talk to the guys in the EU about actually maybe, you know, could we move a lot of our international trade on, 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 onto blockchain, for example. And some of it is really just explain to people what it is uh, and what it isn't. I think that was, that was the main first thing. And clearly, it's, it's, a, you know, it's an exciting subject for people, and people want to be associated with it. That's probably why I hosted the exhibition, just to bring people together. And I just think you just and have you to... have you had a continued interest? Yeah, I had a continued interest, and I keep having conversations with people, um, and people ever so often will meet me, and so I've got this really exciting new whizzy idea, but there's not actually anything I can do with it or help with them. But I'm, I'm just there to help, if that makes sense. So blockchain is one of those issues that people want to know more about. AI is one of those issues that people want to know more about. And I'll continue to host those events and bring people together so we can just have that conversation, really. Brilliant. I'm just wondering, I mean, when, when, you know, when ministers hear things like AI, blockchain, I mean, they're quite, they're almost the sexy words of payments yeah. and technology. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, uh, do ministers want to be associated with these things because it makes them look good? Or do they actually have a real desire Passion to learn it, about yeah. it? I think it's a bit of both. I think there are politicians who will just jump on the bandwagon and say, this is really exciting, I, I, I want to be your technology champion or whatever. Um, and then there are other people who actually go, well, hold a minute, Wait, what, you know, what is this? And actually, no, actually, this is a bit of, 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 is there a bit of hype here? And I think one of the things that people are confused about, and I, I, I don't know the answer, is when people talk to me about blockchain, is it, are they trying to solve a real problem or reduce transaction costs of a real issue? Or actually, is it, hey, we've got, we've got this technology or we've got these ideas and actually we can but we're looking for a solution for it, or we're looking for an application for it. And that's where I'm not quite clear yet. And I think you're right. I think that that's exactly the same. I think sometimes it's a solution looking for a problem. Yes. So not to get confused with blockchain, but one question I've got to ask you is, generally, the European Parliament, what are their thoughts on crypto? Is it, my God, it's not controlled currency? Is it currency? It's the dark arts? What is the general feel of it? I think, it, I think that will probably closely map your own political ideology. So there will be some people in the parliament, clearly, who just see the bad side to it. Do you it. see that almost in different countries have different stance on it? I think it, it tends to be actually, I think it tends to be 
probably more political ideology, do you think government should have more of a role or not in that way? So if you are more of a sort of on the left side of the spectrum, I'm not saying everyone left, that's unfair. Libertarian or... Yeah, if you're, yeah, so if you are, you know, think the state should have more of a role and be aware of everything, to a certain extent, from social democrat to, you know, hardcore communist, you probably think, actually, is this just going to allow all the financial service guys to make lots of money and run rings around us? You know, and then there's the, there's the other side to it where, well, actually, you know, on the centre-right, right through to kind of libertarian. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quite libertarian-minded. I kind of think, well, actually, so what if government can't control this? But there, be, but there will be people who say, no, 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 government has to be aware. And I think where I get pulled back from being an ultra-libertarian on these issues is when something goes wrong. Mm. You know, what happens when something goes wrong? And there are a couple of issues on financial services and technology we've got to be aware of. Is that interface between the technology and the real world. Yeah. So, for example, what happens if we start building up a bubble in digital currency? And that then, when that digital, if that digital currency is ever converted to real world currency, you know, is there a political problem coming up that we've created some sort of bubble mm. and people lose money? And they're all writing to us as a politician saying, what are you going to do about this? Well, I've lost my money on this. No one told me about this. And they'll expect us as politicians to do something. And the other thing, one of the other areas I think we've got to be quite aware of is this so-called smart contracts. Because smart contracts actually pay out. Or not, mm. you know, depending no, no. on... Yeah, exactly yeah. the point. Now, can you challenge a smart contract in a court of law? Now, when I ask that question, some people go, oh, I haven't thought about that. And others, and others say to me, that's a stupid question. Of course you can't. And, then, and, <laughs> and, and in fact, it's always, oh, actually, we better be careful about that. So there's a whole debate. There's no one answer. What happens if someone feels, you know, feels that they signed up to something because it was page 18 or whatever, mm. and actually money has left their account because of a smart, con- a smart contract? So the way smart contracts work is that you, you, you deliver certain things, and yeah. when, when something is delivered, yeah. then something is released, yeah. and then something else has to be delivered. Yeah. And those form the contract. It's the, it's the deliverables on both sides. Yeah. And the concept is where the deliverables on both sides completely match yeah. and they're uh, agreed between the parties at the beginning yeah. then there can't be any doubt because they're fixed the problem comes when there's a grey area of what is a deliverable or exactly. not and that's yeah. what they haven't really so covered we could, yet. so we could well see an interface where someone says well actually you know the, the one the, you know one part you know the plaintiff is saying well actually that wasn't clear and the other thing, well, of course it was clear you signed up to it mm. and so therefore you suddenly got something that you thought wasn't really an issue actually in a real court of law Unless AI comes in to solve that, yeah. and it, basically the parties agree to AI arbitration, yeah. <laughs> and an AI it, comes in and it, says, it, it, "You're it, right, you're wrong." Boom. It, next. It could well be. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of AI, we better get the L out of it. Side, <laughs> so, thank you. We're thank off. you very thank much. You. I could just call security. Brad <laughs> <laughs> <Run>, Robert. <laughs> yeah. Same time. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back. Please don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you.